passionate, compassionate, enthusiastic, generous, grateful, talented, loyal, loving, loud. Just a few words that come to mind when describing my dear friend and living legend, Richard John Vitale, a.k.a. Dickie V. He spent such a long, rich life in college basketball, coaching, broadcasting, promoting, and growing the game as much as any individual ever has. Dick's been honored by about 14 Halls of Fame, has the Sports Emmy Lifetime Achievement Award, and written nine books. But for me, his most important work, what's going to be his everlasting legacy, his relentless efforts to help kids with cancer by raising research money, raising awareness, and providing love and support for so many families. We cover all this and a lot more in this episode. Dick is in rare storytelling form. I even tell how Mr. Vitale played a role in my most embarrassing moment in a TV studio. Now, the one and only Dick Vitale. Well, Mr. Vitale, my friend of more than 35 years, thank you for taking time. I'm really looking forward to this, and I hope you are too. I, I talked about passion, because when I think of you, that's the one word that comes to mind instantly. All the things that you are passionate about, that you live your life with great passion. But at the top of the list has to be your passion for your wife, Lorraine. And you guys, as we record this, just celebrated your 50th wedding anniversary. The golden anniversary, man. I mean, everybody asks you, how, how did you do it? How did you get there? What's your words of wisdom on relationships? <laughs> You know, one, one thing, you know, Chris, uh, Lorraine's been my best friend. She's been my best friend. She travels with me quite a bit, and she's been my guiding light. She's my support factor. <clears throat> when I got fired by the Pistons, I probably was as down as I've ever been in my life. I was really depressed. A lot of people don't realize uh, it really is it's a knock to you. It's a knock saying you're not worth anything, and you, you feel your value is down. And she kept encouraging me, inspiring me. Finally, it was her that got me to go out and do a game for ESPN. Cause I said, no, to Scotty Connor, when he initially called me, he called me saying, Dick, uh, when I left, he said, your last game you ever coached against Michigan. They were number one in the country. We had a great team that year, won 21 in a row. And it was David Goliath. They wouldn't play us, Chris, during the regular season. We beat up my first year. They were on the schedule, but they had Capitola Russell. We upset them, and I couldn't get Johnny Orr back on the schedule. And my players would come in all the time screaming at me, Coach, they're number one in the country. We play with those guys in the summer. We're as good as they are. Can't we play them? Well, then word came in. Word came in from one of my assistants. Where do you see the draw? If we get in the Sweet 16, we play Michigan. I said, call a team meeting. They call a meeting. We put a thing up on the board. I said, well, you guys are bitching and moaning, complaining how much you want to play Michigan. Well, take a look right here. I know they're going to be there with Hubbard and Green. Well, are we going to be there? And we did. We played them in Lexington. And doing the game, Scott O'Connor was there. And I was in awe, Chris. I mean, Chris, I'm looking. I'm 37 years old. I'm sitting in the gym at practice. And I look at the stands. I see Kurt Gowdy. I mean, I'm a baseball fanatic. What the heck's Kirk Gowdy doing here? <laughs> Kirk Gowdy, World, World Series, Super Bowls, Emmy Award winning announcer. And next door, the Wizard of Westwood, John Wooden. I'm saying, what the heck? So the third guy comes up to me, who happened to be Scotty Connell. I didn't know him at the time. He said, no, I'm the head of NBC, this and that production. And we decided to televise your game. Your game's going to be televised. It's David against Goliath. And John Wooden's going to be the color commentator. Kirk Gowdy's going to do the play-by-play. Oh, my God. I called my team over. Little did I know, Chris, how this changed my life. I called the team over, and I gave a three-minute talk on the definition of greatness and how we utilize it so often just for everyone, and it's really meaningless. And I'm guilty of that as well. Many announcers are. Uh, maybe you're not, but I know many of us are. But the bottom line is, I said, this defines greatness. Ten national championships, sports Emmys. I'm in awe that these guys are here. And little did I know, we lost a heartbreaker. And supposedly, Scotty, when he called me up after I got fired on November, November, you remember these dates? Remember like my... Uh, uh, like my wedding anniversary, May 22nd, November 8, 1979, I got the Ziggy. So I get fired, the phone rings. You're not going to remember me, Dick. My name is Scotty Conn. i just been named the head of hiring, firing all at ESPN. I'd like you to do our very first big game, Wisconsin-Nepal. 
I said, what the hell is ESPN? Sounds like a disease. That's <laughs> true, Chris. I said, sounds like a disease. I mean, are you kidding me? I want to get back where I belong, coaching in college. And that was the end of the conversation. Then I sat back and I did what I was doing on a regular basis. I was watching Luca Laura at General Hospital. I was so depressed sitting around the house. And my wife said, why did you take that? Fortunately for me, Chris, he calls me back 10 days later. And he said, look, we have one more last shot. And my wife's screaming about taking the range. And I took it. And little did I know that speech, because he said to me, when we left the arena, he said, when we left the arena, Kirk Gowdy, you guys lost, we lost in the last minute. It was an incredible game. We, we had won 21 in a row. We beat Marquette at Marquette. Two months later, Marquette wins the national title. My kids really felt that if we could beat Michigan, we're going to win the national title. Because we're better than Marquette. We beat them on their floor. So anyway, bottom line is, he said, when we left, he said, Coach Wooden and Kirk Gowdy said to me, Scotty, we love that young guy's enthusiasm. His energy is unbelievable. You should think about him on TV. I wrote your name down. I wrote it down. I saw the transactions. You got fired. Well, we want to start a new career. That was it. And that's where, you know, I've always, you know, Chris, passion you mentioned, passion started with me and my home. I lost my eyes as a kid. And my mom and dad kept telling me all the time, uneducated parents, I mean, fifth grade educated, working factories, but love. I had a, they had a doctorate of love. And they kept telling me all the time. I was never dick. Richie. Richie, one of a big deal. One of me, you could be what anybody else could be. You got such, she never said passion. There's always energy. Your energy, Richie, they can't hold you back. Well, I think that that's, you, you were, you were way ahead of the curve talking about the topic of bullying, which so many kids go through. You, you knew, knew it as teasing. It wasn't known as bullying back then, but how many times as a kid and then later on, in life for various reasons were you told you can't do this whether it was the eye or you're not smart enough you're not uh slick enough to do this stuff you're not uh classically good looking enough i think you're plenty good looking but you know what i'm saying how many times in your life were you told you can't do this (laughs) but i love you anyway my wife said worse to me (laughs) i said classically no, I mean, but you you bumped up against that as so many of the athletes and the coaches you covered over the years, you bumped up against people telling you what you can't do, what the limits are in your life, what you can achieve because of an obstacle that's been put in front of you, man. And that you've lived that uh, from, from age five and you've, you've kicked its ass. Well, you know, Chris, uh, when I was in the Little League, uh, so now I was a pretty good pitcher, man. I got an article sent to me about, oh God, a year ago, I got an article sent to me a year or two ago. And in the article, one of my former players on my team sent it to me. And it's Richie Vitale, just misses Little League Hall of Fame, which, by the way, I got into some big honor at Williamsport. But I used to throw hard. I used to throw hard. And one game I struck out, I think, was 16 out of the 18 batters, had a no-hit perfect game. And then a kid at first base, the ball rolled through the Gave him a hit. My uncles, my uncles were unbelievable. All factory workers. My father had nine brothers and sisters. My mother and I. They come to little league games and they loved everything I did in sports because they were sports fanatics. And that must have been one hell of a cheering section. I must have been the Vitale cheering section yeah. for well, you're striking they, guys out. Must have been unbelievable. <laughs> they, my uncle Mike, Uncle Frank, Uncle Tom in particular, Uncle Sam. They fanatic baseball fans. When they, when they roll the hit on the play. They come running, screaming at the umpire. I got to come. Oh, no. That's no hit. I watch him. Little League. I said, calm down, man. We won the game. But, you know, I'd pitch in Little League, and I'd actually hear Chris. And like you said, you said a while, you did your research, obviously. Uh, I was, I always thought it was teasing, teasing. But it hurt. Oh, it hurt. Because my eye used to – I don't know if you remember when I, when I worked with you. I, I don't know if I had – I wore glasses when I worked with you. I didn't yeah, wear contacts yeah. initially. And my eye used to drift. My eyes, I could never look you straight in the eye. If I'd be on TV, I'd do this all the time to turn to try to hide the fact that the eye drifting. So what happened when I'm pitching Little League, I got, I'm thrown fairly hard. I got the mothers and fathers or whoever they were, fans of the other team screaming out, does he know where he's throwing the ball? Look at his eye, man. Look at his eye. Oh, you know, oh my God. I tell you, it was like knives. I'd go home after the game, and my mother would catch me in my room, hysterical, as I'm staring at a mirror, 
I'm looking at my eye. I get emotional thinking about it right now. And I cry and cry. And my mother said, well, Richie, what's the matter? I said, they tease me. Mike, I get emotional. Thinking, they tease me. And I can't control it. There's nothing I can do. You know, usually if you're in control of what you do, you can, you can contain it. But I couldn't control it. It just frustrated me. And I fought that all the time. And I tried to hide it with smiles on my face, enthusiasm, energy with people. But down there deep. It really cut, cut my heart. And I always thought when this bullying thing started a few years ago, I'm going to share this because it's just ridiculous what people do to people who have no control of the of the situation they're dealing with. And fortunately for me, I got a lucky break. My wife, Lorraine, went to uh, Dr. Giles. I, I always tell him I'm so thankful to him. He's a, uh, pedi- he's a pediatric uh, eye doctor, but he was looking at my daughter's eyes and typical annual evaluation. He saw the name and he said to my wife, so I'm a big basketball fan. He says, uh, any relation to Dick Vital?" And she said, yeah, it's my husband. And he said, look, I'm going to ask you something. I said, he talked to him about correcting that eye. He said, because I know I could do it. Even though I'm a, uh, I would make an exception. I don't work up at adults, but I'm very good. I'm, he was very, you talk about Michael Jordan being confident, guys like that with swag. He said, I'm the best at what I do, man. He says, I will straighten that eye out for him if he will. If, if you're going to operate under the eye, you better have confidence in the guy doing it. I mean, that's, that's, so, that's a tough it's decision. My only eye. My yeah. only eye you know? Here's the deal. So now I, I, I'm i home and I, I said no. And then finally, one day at ESPN, and I used this in my speech because he was near. When I got inducted into the Sportscasters Hall of Fame, ESPN had a big table there. Everybody was there from John Wildhack, Steve Anderson's, uh, uh, all, all the executives. President George Bodenheim introduced me, um, but I, I saw Steve and it brought back memories. And in my speech, in my speech, I said, Steve, I got to thank you because if it wasn't for Steve, I called Steve up, was in charge of all our talent at the time, mm-hmm. uh, remote talent. I don't know if he's in charge of you guys in New York, but he was in charge of all the remote guys. And I called him up and I said, Steve, I'm resigning. I've had it because what happened on a Sunday we're in the studio. I believe it was John Saunders. I think it was Jimmy B. I, I don't know. We're working in the studio on a Sunday. And as we walk out, we usually ask the receptionist, so anybody calling, screaming and yelling? And if they scream and yell, you know, we did a pretty good job. We got somebody all fired up. She says, no, except one guy. One guy keeps calling up, wants the president's number. He wants this. He wants you off the air because of your eye. Oh, my God. It was like... I, I can't tell you the feeling, Chris. You went back to that bedroom when you were five years old, the same emotions and the same. Yeah. Bottom line is I was so hurt. So I came home. I called Chris, uh, Steve up and I told Steve the next day on Monday that I'm resigning. And he said, don't be ridiculous. We didn't hire you for about your eyes. We hired you for your knowledge, your enthusiasm. And he said, please don't. But then I couldn't sleep. And I told my wife, I said, I'm going to go see that doctor. So I went to see him. And he said, I can take care of that eye, Dick. I swear I can take care of it. But you have to sign these papers. He said, because there's always a chance during surgery that something could go in. And I, I've never lost, he said, I've never lost vision in a child's eye in doing surgery in my whole career. And I don't plan on losing vision. However, what I have to tell you, I have to operate on your good eye to fix the bad eye. You had some uh, pulling the muscle uh, to get... Oh my God. And that put me on delay totally. I, I said, I, doc, I, I just can't take a chance on my good eye that, that something happens. And he said, I'm telling you nothing's going to happen. So I went home, tossed and turned about it for about two days, finally went back and said, let's do it. And he did it. And he said, I'm going to put you in contact, get rid of the thick glasses. And it changed my life. But the bottom line is, the bottom line, people can be mean. People can be mean. As I see on social media as well, you know, most people are great. 90% of the people, but it's, we live in a society where people like to hurt people sometimes. And it just, it frustrates me. But I, I go out of my way when I see somebody struggling physically in my walking or whatever, seeing somebody, so what yesterday in a wheelchair and it was struggling, getting over a curb. And I couldn't wait to like go over and say, hey, you okay? You need help? I, I, I don't know. I, I, well, my parents, my parents were my guiding light. I would give anything. <laughs> if my mother and father ever, ever saw the home I live in and the things that's happened in my life, 
they're blown away. We had one bathroom growing up as a kid. We had a nice little home. Don't get me wrong. We had a nice little home. And we had so much love. We had so much love. And we need more of that, Chris. And, and you heard me when I spoke at, at my gala. And I mean this so, so much. We need more love in a nation. That room, you were there, was filled with so much love in that room by people like yourself, the Lou Holtzes, the uh, Bruce Arians, all the stars that were gathered, all those kids. You could feel the love people had for them. We have too much hate in our nation. I don't care whether one is black, rich, poor, white, whatever, Muslim, Christian, Jewish. I mean, we got to all unite. We got to all try to put our arm around each other. And if anybody, would, if everybody would adopt the philosophy that I grew up with, my mother and father at my dinner table, I learned more at my damn dinner table than any class I ever took. I got my master's in 30 because I was preparing for option B. I always believe in life that you have option A was my dream to be a college coach, but option B was more realistic to be a principal, be an administrator after coaching. So I'd go at nights, eat my tuna fish sandwich in the car after basketball, high school practice, go and get my master's degree. Mike Fratello, which he had a bottle of time, would sit in the back of the room, the three of us, chasing these dreams. Bottom line is, but I got lucky and got option B. And I, I, I just feel that it's important in life to be able to, to, to do the things in a proper way. My mother and father said, so never, ever believe in camp, Richie. And the second thing they used to always tell me, always, treat people like you want to be treated. If you treat people like you want to be treated, my God, what a world would have. And I think that's a simple philosophy. And we don't have it right now in this nation. We don't have it. There's so much to get into. I definitely want to circle back to the gala and the power of that evening and the passion you have and the compassion that you have for the kids. I want to talk about that. You, you said a couple things there, though. If people only realized the depth of the hurt they create by some offhanded comment, it's done so loosely and so freely and so thoughtlessly. And anybody that's that's working to sort of make people aware and end bullying and, and teasing is doing great work because there is way too much of it in this society. I want to circle back to something else, though. You know, you you're a giant in what you what you do and you have been for a long time yet there's still that sensitive part that one random idiot who calls the switchboard and chooses to make a point about your eye bothering him you, you said it ate you alive and it, it caused you to lose sleep and that that hurts me to hear that but it also look look what it turned into dick look what what random caller and the hurt of that turned into you making the decision having the courage to make a decision that you said was life changing and i think that's something else that is an important lesson to take away is all the hurt all the things that you feel if you if you spin it can be viewed as a possible growing experience and a life changing moment you were able to do that and and find the guts be maybe if that random idiot doesn't call the switchboard maybe you don't take that path or maybe it takes a lot longer to get there it, it it's i think it's a good lesson for people well thank you. I appreciate that so much. And I, I really, you know, I don't want to make it like people feel sorry or whatever. I've lived a hell of a life. My life succeeded any dream. You know, I couldn't dream of a better life. I got a gorgeous wife. I mean, my wife, I just made, you should congratulate me, which you didn't. I just got a new Hall of Fame. I'm in like 14 Hall of Fames, but according <laughs> to Twitter, I got into a new one because I wanted guys on Twitter, but Nikki B has been in a lot of Hall of Fames. But now after looking at his wife, I can tell you this, he's in the overachievable Hall of Fame. <laughs> and the guy's right. Because anybody knows Lorraine like you do, she's a saint. She's a saint. That was the greatest I do I ever said 50 years ago. 50 years ago, it was unbelievable. After she said, I don't, I don't. After she said no to you asking her to dance three times, I've heard you tell that that long story, oh, which is God. very funny. <laughs> but That's see, so true. persistence, add, add persistence and, and confidence and a little swag, a little yeah. swag that you had even back then. Add that to the list of things that's gotten to where you are right now, because that was an important no. moment right there, man. <laughs> no, no doubt about it. We would get together, a bunch of coaches, Richie Adamato, Fratellos, all the guys. We get together, talk about I mean, North Jersey. We had so many great coaches in North Jersey. I mean, you think about them all, Luke Campanelli, Molly Massimino, the beat goes on. But anyway, you be brown. <clears throat> but the situation was she did reject me. But the third time, man, I took the fastball the first time. I took the curveball, and she tried to throw me a slider, but she couldn't get the slider by me because all the guys bet me, Chris. They bet me at the table. You know how guys are. You got 10 guys sitting here, and I'm going over to the dance because there's 
Um, she showed me a picture, by the way, at the 15th anniversary. I didn't even know she had this. At our big family gathering at this restaurant, my wife pulls out the pictures. She says, you always hear, she always, she calls me Richie. She never called me Dixon. You always hear Richie. She was telling my daughters, Yo, your dad always told about me, my hot pants. When he met me, well, here's the picture. And she has a picture with the white boots and the hot pants on when she's like 23 years old. And all I can say is, wow. So the bottom line is, bottom line is, <laughs> all the guys, they were ragging on me like you couldn't believe, giving high fives that I'm getting rejected. Finally, the stuff I got rejected my second time, I watched them turn down about 10 guys asking her to dance. Finally, the third time, I said, I am so pissed off. <laughs> I said, do me a favor, guys. Throw money up here. I, I'm not a betting guy. I bet I get her on the dance floor. Guys throw 10s, 20s. I grabbed the money. The truth is not. I grabbed the money. That's what you had a I grabbed the money. And I go over and say, look, look, I don't want your name. I don't want anything. I just bet my guys. Just please. I said, let me ask you a question. You look so pretty coming out here tonight. I've been watching you turn down all these guys. What does that do? Does that get you excited? You turn down all these guys asking you to dance? I mean, all I want to do is dance with you. I don't want nothing but a dance. She says, you want to dance that badly. I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll even give you the money. So I guess everybody's got a price. But she didn't take any money. But the bottom line is we danced. And we've been dancing since then for over 50, That's awesome, 50 man. years and one day. Yeah, May 1971, that's the that's the same month that Amtrak started running its trains. The, the probe to Mars was sent. All in the family won the Emmy. I, I did some research, and you guys are married. And and that what what an eventful month. And and uh, again, congrats on the Goldman anniversary. Now, now Terry and Sherry, your two daughters, you you guys raised two beautiful daughters who are uh, talented in a lot of ways. And that's the reason I met you at Nick Bolletieri Senate Academy. We were doing uh, features on high school kids. And they were talented enough, even if they didn't have a famous father, to get on the show. So we go down there, and, th- and that's where we—that's where we first met. And uh, and then little did I know at the time that life was going to take me into working college basketball. We were, we were going to work together for fifteen more years. But uh, but uh, you know, great thank God great your daughters time. played tennis, or I would never—we never had that meeting maybe for a while. Sports has been part of our life with my grandkids. You know, Chris. But you never pressured I, them, right? Uh, you didn't. You, you didn't pressure your daughters to play. You didn't. You didn't pressure them to play basketball. You don't pressure your grandkids. Uh, you know, as passionate as you are, you know, some grandparents step into that and they 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 kind of impose their dreams on on other generations. Well, the only thing I, I impose is if you do something, do it to the best of your ability. Pursue it with great passion and pride. Doesn't mean you're always going to succeed. There are a lot of great players out there competing, trying to do what you're doing. But as long as you can do every day. My message to any young person that might be checking in on your podcast is try this out. Try this formula out. Every day of your life, when the night ends and you go and look at the mirror and the night is finished, can you say to yourself, I was better today in pursuit of my goals and dreams than I was yesterday? And if you do that every day, that just adds up like you can't believe. And you know what, Chris? At this week, we were at this real good restaurant. It's called Cafe La Rope here in Sarasota. And we had uh, 14 of us with us, all my family and uh, my son-in-law, Chris's mother was there, and Lorraine's brother and, and his uh, wife as well, and all my, my family, which is five grandkids, son-in-laws, and daughters. I got very emotional, and I'll, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I told him, I said, usually I'm not speechless, but I, I start crying a little bit in terms of, you know, you know, I'm my age now, you're thinking about Am I going to see my grandkids graduate college? I'm going to watch them play tennis. Thoughts go through your mind. And what I told them, and I tried to impact them with, make good decisions in your life. There's so many people, I said, I can't comprehend sometimes how people are so driven to be a success and put in hour after hour, whether it be law, whether it be medicine, whether it be athletics, and then ruin it all in five minutes by making bad decisions, domestic violence or whatever, uh, drugs, alcohol, abuse, doing it and ruining everything that they work so hard for. I said, there's one thing I pray that you guys and you girls, my granddaughters as well, I said that you make good decisions and don't become one dimensional. Don't become defined just by thinking that tennis, tennis is the equalizer to success in life. 
Get to know when you're in Notre Dame. Get to know when you're at Duke. The kids next to you that aren't athletes, because they're going to go on many of those and be CEOs and major, major uh, companies and be super successes. And I, and I got a little emotional about it. You know, I, I, as, a, as, a, <clears throat> as a dad and as a, a husband and as a father, I, I've been very blessed to have a situation where I've had a great job. To me, it's a great job. I mean, 40 some years doing what I love, getting paid to sit at courtside, some of the greatest games over the years, meeting some unbelievable people. Um, then also the fact, you know, what I do off the year, I probably made more money off the year than on the year with speaking uh, has been great to me. I've watched the speakers for over 30 years and booked me all over the place. Commercials over the years have been incredible. Uh, but the bottom line, and then I, I have a wife that I had to come home to. There's no, you know, there's no tension. There's no, she's just such easy person to get along. If I couldn't get along with Lorraine, I'm in trouble, man. She's a saint. So 50 years of having that in front of me, having support factor like she is. And then on top of it, getting two girls that I can honestly truly say right here, Chris, they never gave me one ounce of trouble ever, ever while they were in school. We hear stories and they have been really, if anything, and I said it during my speech, and I'll tell you that it done. So I have one critique about Terry and Chris, and Sherry and Thomas is this. Your life is just too, too much centered everything, your kids, your kids, and you don't do enough alone by yourselves. I said, your everything is them, them. You've got to do things a little bit by yourselves. I said, I know it's easy for me to say that because when I, when you guys grew up, Terry, Sherry, you grew up, your mother and I, that's all our life was. Everything, what you guys did, your tennis tournaments, your matches, you know, <laughs> but I'll never forget one match. They're going to play. They're, they're not seated. Big tournament out in California. This is unbelievable. San Rafael. It's the preliminary to the big national tournament. So all the kids played it to try and get a little warmed up, making the transition going to California. Terry and Jerry, they're not seated. They end up meeting in the finals. Mm. They're now at a sit there, and you got to make a decision. And Fortunately for me, I didn't have to watch the match because I had a speaking engagement and I never thought they were going to go to the finals. I have a speaking engagement the next day at Princeton University. So I'm going to go there to speak at a basketball camp put on, I think about the NBA at the time. So my wife, I'm conveying back and forth with my wife, and be honest with you, I would never tell Terry and Sherry this, but they can probably hear it now. I wanted, in the worst way, Terry to win because Terry was two years older. She was a junior. I was recruiting time, college coaches all there, the whole bit. And Sherry beats her in three sets, and an incredible tiebreaker third, and the ninth grader wins. Yeah. So, and it really bothered me because Tennis Magazine, it was a magazine, it was called, I think, Tennis Magazine, Chris. I don't think it's out anymore. And in that magazine, they did like a feature on the kids that win that tournament. And I wanted so badly for she was a junior, going to get recruited. And, but anyway, you know, so you were, you were like a you were kind of a, a, a an early miniature version of Richard Williams. You had these two talented daughters. I mean, not not they weren't quite Venus and Serena, but I mean, no, they're not, you, don't, don't go there. No, 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 no. But I mean, the, the, the dynamic. No, no, the dynamic of sisters competing and and what that puts a parent in, like how you wrestle with that stuff. And yeah. uh, I, Richard had a hard time, you know, didn't like when they played each other, and he would he would leave as you did, as you had to leave that day. But that that's a, that's a great story. It's tough watching even my grandsons now. I, I know what I love. I'm going right after we do our thing here. I'm going to watch Connor and Jake work out. I love watching the workouts. I hate watching the matches. But the point getting, I've lived a life. That's why I love giving back. I love giving back because I was given so much, much more than I ever dreamt or ever thought in my life. And that's why, Chris, and you, you know now, I'm obsessed with raising money for kids. I mean, I, I'm obsessed to the point where I drive people nuts with text messages, pictures, articles, because it's so important. When I talk to a family and I hear the stories and get to know the kids, gee whiz. I mean, when we had our press conference the other day, when I had my gala, we have a press conference, you know, usually at five o'clock, and all the kids sit there with the kids we bring, courageous kids. I mean, kids... Joshua Fisher, young kid, 12 years old, at 1,250 doses of chemotherapy. Uh, Weston Herman, 
four times brain cancer, four times. He's in his fourth battle doing 52 weeks of chemotherapy. And, and when I talk to the father and mother, the pain you can feel out of their voices is unreal. And the kid is such a hockey player. Oh, my God, you should see him play hockey. He, and not good, terrific. So when the father called me about six months ago, I guess, and soon as his voice, I heard his voice, Jared, a great guy, super person, young guy, he's got three kids. And I can tell by his voice, what's going on, Jared? So we just got bad news. I said, what's the bad news? And I'm hoping, I'm crossing my fingers, it's not what I'm starting to think. I said, what's wrong? He said, Weston, he did his quarterly checkup and he's been so good for two years, cancer remission, the doctor said the brain tumor has come back. And they have two options. One, they can do surgery, but it's very dangerous to do because he's had two surgeries already and it could lead to paralysis. And the second option is you got a choice, 52 weeks of chemo. And he took the 52 weeks of chemo. To show you the toughness of this kid, about two months ago, he's doing chemo and he tells the doctor, I'm playing hockey tonight. Doctor said, I'm going to play hockey tonight. You're not you're going to be more exhausted. I'm going to play hockey. Jared calls me up, says, you're not going to believe it. He said, Weston is throwing up in the car, throwing up on the lawn. He's inside putting his hockey uniform on right now. He's going to play hockey tonight. And he plays with older kids. He's 13 now. He's playing with like 15-year-old kids. He scored three goals, was in a paper, big right. Wow. Three goals, two assists. So, I mean. I, I had a conversation. So actually, I, I, I met him and his parents, and we had a conversation about that after you had mentioned that in the speech at your gala. And, uh, you know, we, we took some pictures and I, I was, he was very modest. He's very low key about it. And the, the, the demeanor that he has is, is really impressive. You're right. You, you, you put the spotlight on so many special kids. And I know that the, the compassion and the love that you have for, for Weston is just duplicated many, many times over the years. There've been so many kids that, that you've gotten to know them and their families and it, it's, it's a labor of love because it, and it's authentic because you know their stories, you know their treatment histories, you know their parents' stories, and and being able to to salute them and let their parents and those kids stand in front of a crowd that jumps to its feet and is clapping and cheering and saluting their courage has an unbelievable impact. I, we'll, we'll get a little bit more into the gala, which by the way raised what over six million in one event this year, which is a staggering total and is way over 40 million now. But, but, but what is it about pediatric cancer, Dick, and, and those stories and those kids that has made this a, you know, kind of a, a lifelong passion or, or a decade long passion for you? What, what is it about them and their stories and this disease? Well, you know, no kids should suffer. They should be out playing like my grandkids. And I always have the fear. Uh, I mean, I hear stories of just a simple headache. A kid named Kyle Peters. His, his uh, mom works in the courthouse where my son-in-law works. Uh, Kyle uh, came down with a situation with a headache. So what do you do? You give him Advil, she said. You give him uh, uh, some heating pads, but it didn't go away. Now you go to the doctor. The doctor says, oh, my God, did an MRI. He's got a tumor. He's got a tumor. And to show that money works, Chris, I think I may have mentioned it at my gala. If I didn't, I know the youngster mentioned it at my house when he spoke. He's in college now, Kyle. He was 12 years old at this time, playing Little League Baseball. And something I've known him that many years. But at my house, we have a post-gala for a lot of people don't understand. We have a post-gala. People donate big money to join people like you who came, people, celebrities, join in with them in a casual dress kind of atmosphere where you and I closed the house party till about one in the morning with stories <laughs> about ESPN of stories. The stories we'll, get to that. we'll get to that later. We'll go back to it. Yeah. <laughs> the stories were great. But anyway, uh, Kyle's mother, about three years ago, the gala ends and she comes over to me and she says, I want to talk to you and Lorraine and everybody's leaving the gala. We had a great successful gala and she cuts tearing up and then she says, I want to thank you for saving my son's life. I said, I saved your son's life. I don't say anybody's life. I'm not a doctor. I'm not. She says, no. When Kyle went to All Children's Hospital with his brain cancer, they said the research grant that was given in memory of Peyton Wright, who lost her life. That's what got me really going, a neighbor of mine, and went to her funeral, six years old, just crushed me. Her 
living the American dream, Patrick and Holly, nice home, nice job. And all of a sudden your child gets cancer, changes your life. I watched that girl get blind. I watched that girl get paralyzed. And then I watched her lose her life or went to the funeral. But she said the research grant that you raised dollars for, they said that research grant for brain cancer saved Kyle. And Kyle is cancer-free. He's been for the last seven, eight years. He's now in college in Central Florida. I mean, stories like that just, I mean, I, I can't describe what I felt like when I left that gala. I mean, no, no, I, I, I think that's the thing too, is that you, I know how you feel. You feel exhausted and drained because you put so much energy into it. You, you're an incredibly generous person in many ways, but especially in that. But I think you need to know, maybe you hear this, but I'll tell you as someone that's been there and, and was very honored to be, to be given an award there a few years ago, believe me, it, it, because cancer has touched my life and touched everybody's life, really far too many lives. But people like me, Dick, leave that room. And I know that the number is staggering and the dollars do go to real work. But beyond that, you leave people inspired to go out and want to do more and want to care more and want to be more generous, better people. And that has an effect when they see the example you set and you see the power of that evening and the effect that it has on their kids and their families. I walk out of there thinking, you know, shit, yeah, I write a check, but I, I want to do more. I, I want to care more. So thank you for the gift of being inspirational in that way. That That is going to be, it already is a wonderful legacy of the event. It's what's done there, but it's how it makes people feel when they go out of that room and out into the world. Well, I appreciate that, Chris. I really do. I, you know, remember you, Jimmy V. Uh, one time, I will never forget, really got me going. I mean, I could talk all day about this stuff, and, and I don't want to do that to bore people, but Jimmy V, I went at the... Uh, Hotel, of course, from ESPN, getting ready to go work on a Monday. And I'm having dinner. Uh, he went up to his room. And all of a sudden, about 20 minutes later, the girl, the receptionist was over. And she says, uh, Jim Valvano said, can you please come up to his room? He said, I appreciate it very much coming. So I go up his room. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. He's in shorts. And he's crying, punching the wall. I said, Jimmy, what's going on? What's? He said, take your worst toothache and run through your body. I feel that every day. And I knew that he had turned down requests by doctors to do morphine, to try and kill the pain, the pain, because he believed in his mind. You know, I ain't taking that news through F's here and there. I ain't taking that morphine. That means I'm done. I'm finished. And I'm not finished. I'm going to be one of those people going to beat this. They said like 10% beat what he had. Well, I'm going to be one of those. And he just fought and fought and went through that pain. And we sat there and talked. And man, I'll be honest with you, uh, my last conversation, I, I, I could stimulate you say, where do I get inspired? My last conversation with him was right after I introduced him at the uh, SPs, first SPs. And uh, it was unbelievable. He got uh, the Arthur Ashe Award, the first recipient of it. I was introduced by Dustin Hoffman, and he talked about Arthur Ashe, and then he brought me up to introduce Jimmy. I thought Jimmy was going to just say, thank you, sit down. Because if you saw him that night before and the day of the ESPY, you would have never believed he could get up there and give that speech. He was out of it. So much so, I finally begged him the night before to make sure he came. Because what happened, I went over with Joe Thijs. We were in a car going over. And I, I just thought it was going to be another event. And when I went to the rehearsal the night before, I was blown away with what they were going to do and all this. So I called his house up. And, you know, his wife's typical Pam said, uh, he's in a room just down. You know, please get him on the phone. So he got on the phone. I said, Jimmy, tomorrow's going to be special, man. He said, Dick, he was very low key. You know, I mean, hard to believe this guy can get up there and give that speech. Mm -hmm. He says, You think I'm worried about Dick? Worried about getting some awards or whatever. He says, I'm not going to see my little girl graduate grammar school. I'm not going to go walk my daughter down the aisle, man. I mean, he's got me in tears. He's got me, you know, it's, come on, Jimmy. You got to toughen up. You got to, you can do it. You got to be there. Mike Krzyzewski and his wife flew with Jimmy. In. in fact, if people go to my Facebook, on my Facebook, they go to Facebook, The Real Dick Vitale, we open it up with there's a thing, Victory. V for victory. And it's all about Mike and I sharing. We write a letter. We write a letter about 
the night before, the night before the ESPYs. And it's all about how Mike's talking about in a plane, how Jimmy's throwing up like crazy in a plane in the back. He he and Mickey flew him up, flew up to get him. And if you remember, we had to carry him on the stage. Yeah. Before that, a lot of people didn't know this. Before that, real like a couple hours before or hour or whatever it was before, I, I knew he would, the way he felt. So I was trying to grab someone's assistant there it was putting on the event to maybe bring the microphone to him sitting down. So he sees me talking to him. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'll try to make it easy for you, man. Dick, Dick, I didn't come here. Just get me up on that stage. Please just get me up. And in this video I'm talking about that's on my Facebook, Mike and I write on our arms because we were here. Just get me up on the stage. And it got him up there. I'd like to say, thank you. I stood there for the whole time. I would have never stood there for 25 minutes. I would have I would sat down if I was given us. It was the most electrifying moment. I can't thank ESPN enough for allowing this to happen. And I'm going to work as hard as I can, you know, for cancer research. And hopefully we'll be, maybe we'll have some cures and some breakthroughs. And I'd like to think I'm going to fight my brains out to be back here again next year for the Arthur Ashe recipient. I want to give it next year. I know I've got to go, I've, I've got to go, and I've got one last thing. I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again. Cancer can take away all my physical abilities. It cannot touch my mind, it cannot touch my heart, and it cannot touch my soul. And those three things are going to carry on forever. I thank you, and God bless you all. So I pulled them up the next day, 12 hours later, after he electrifies the nation with that speech, I call him up maybe around noontime, figured you know, like eight in the morning, flight flew back, you get home. Uh, I got home, I guess 12, one o'clock, whatever it was. My answer machine was loaded with coaches calling, who a lot of them maybe didn't think Jimmy was that ill, you know, and they, they saw that speech and they were blown away. So I called to tell him what a great job he did and how you know, that was my last conversation. I called Bam, she says, Phone is off the hook. He's not talking to anyone. Mm -hmm. He took me one. He took one phone call. The president of the United States. That's the only call he took. And I said, "Well, I'm not the president, but I want him to get on that phone. Get him on the phone." She says he's in his room. He's been crying. He's been. I said, "Pam, please get him on her phone." So she got him on. He got on. You know, you could barely hear him, Chris. This is a guy that was electrified, laughing at people going. You know, is this I'm doing the conversation? Yeah, yeah. It's over, man. It's over. Jimmy, don't talk like that. You can't quit. You can't give up. Oh, no more speeches, Dick. No more. It's done. I said, I love you, man. I, I get choked. I love you, Jimmy. Jimmy, I said, you got to keep fighting. got to keep fighting. And it just was my last conversation. He died right after, died shortly after that. Went to the funeral, but think about his legacy. But he had Dick. He had everything he had left, and yeah. and found some what he didn't think he had put into that speech. And yeah. it, 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 you said electrifying. I mean, it is a message that lives forever. It's Ever. it's words that have inspired millions of people that live forever. It's inspired other generations who now come to find that speech and don't even know what he did. In right. his back coaching career, they found that, and that, that's a that's an incredible backstory. A lot of that stuff I didn't know about what it took to get him on the stage, what it took within him to stand there and deliver that message that will live forever. And I'm not surprised that it that it it took everything that he had left at that point. I mean, the ending is obviously brutally sad. The finality always stabs you in the gut. But to think about what what he left the world. And, and what he will be remembered for is, is more of those 25 minutes that even, even running around on the court after NC State beat Houston in a national championship, it's that, it's that moment on that stage in LA. You know, Chris, think about this. Over a quarter, I'm proud to be on a board of directors, and my dollars I raised for the V Foundation is all pediatrics, but the V Foundation itself has raised for every form of cancer, whether it be lung, prostate, colon, breast cancer, whatever, over $260 million, that's a quarter of a billion. So think about Jimmy's life. Think about the legacy, the impact of that 
winning that national title obviously made this a scenario where his message became bigger and bigger because his personality was known by many people in the sports world. But the impact it's had on so many lives, I mean, to me, isn't that what life is? If you can leave this world and knowing that you've impacted people forever, that's what Jimmy V did. Yeah. And did it in a, in, a, in a way that was just, I will never forget standing here listening to that speech. In fact, at my gala, I always tell people, and every time I give a speech there, there's three things that are going to happen in this room tonight that Jimmy used to always proclaim was vital to living a full day. You're going to be moved to thought, you're going to be moved to laughter, and you're going to be moved to tears. It's going to happen. In that room, that happened. There is no doubt about it. Every gal I have, there's people thought, there's laughter, and then there's tears, and there's tears. But, you know, so proud to be able to use celebrityhood in a way to be able to get entree. See, what, what I have going for me now is I'm able to get entree with key people who could donate. I just need more. I need more athletes and more entertainers and more people out there to come forward, come forward and realize, Chris, there's only four cents out of every dollar goes for funding for kids. That's when people donate for cancer, for research. Pediatrics is four cents of that, that dollar. That's a shocking every, stat. You, you repeat that every year, that, that, that four cents goes to cancer for kids research out, out of yeah. out of 100 yeah. cents. Why, why, that makes that makes no sense. But it's uh, you're you're slowly making people aware of that and perhaps changing it and doing doing some phenomenal work. Well, so. hope to do it anyway. I don't want to uh, go on. What else? No, I want to talk about. Listen, you you mentioned you mentioned the tears, the laughter. When I work with you guys, when I when I was in the studio with, with you and and uh, Jim Balvano, th- those were for me some of the greatest memories. I mean, I, it was so much fun as a host. I didn't have to work very hard because you guys each were brilliant communicators. You had your own dynamic on the set with each other. We love teasing it, you too. <laughs> yeah. You always come at the junior varsity. That's okay. I, I, I could, I was, I was able to step up as a JV host and work with two giants. And that was a blast. And you, you know, we talked the other night, you mentioned, you mentioned closing the, closing your backyard down till one o'clock in the morning after your gala, telling old stories about some of the behind the scenes stuff at ESPN. What I find interesting is people come up and say, Oh, I like when you, when you and Vital were together, but you know, we watched and we were never sure like that. These guys like each other. Were they friends? Cause we would throw the you know, little friendly jabs. You, you, you would call me the JV on the air, by the way, that's all right. And I would, you call me I, I would give you the business and you know, and you, you, I never gave you the credit for getting a bracket pick, right. That you wanted. But, but I think it was interesting. People thought like, I don't know, maybe they don't get along. Maybe, maybe there's a problem there, I, but I thought that was just good TV. They were the key, key people guessing that way, get a spark going, you know? Well, you know, I tell you, we had so much fun there. There's no question about it. Uh, really, you, you have a great gift. You know how to get your people to really respond and get them really as a host. That's a great gift you possess. And you did a great job with that. Certainly with college game day, you were off the charts what you did with there. But now you went to the big leagues and you up there as doing that play-by-play of the game in a week. And you and Kurt do a tremendous job together. And uh, really, I'm very proud to say that I've watched you grow from where you are to where you are today. That's very kind. I'm going to stop you right there. I don't, I get uncomfortable when people start paying compliments here, but I, you, you know how I feel about you. I, I think that, you know, I, I will say I told the story and I'll, I'll tell it quickly here, the, the shortened version, but my lowest point as a broadcaster, cause I don't raise my voice. I don't really get angry uh, in a studio or on a set. I try to be composed cause people look to the, the host role as, as kind of the point guard, right? You're supposed to be in control, keep your cool. And if you're not, everybody kind of feeds off that. It can get sideways. But I had bronchitis one time, one of our March Madness weekends. And we had Dale Brown, ex-LSU coach in there. Diggers over here to my left. They had a little friction. They didn't have a great relationship. So now we got to deal with that. You're over there doing your thing. I don't have to worry about you. But, but these shows are freeform. There's no script. There's barely a format. So segment by segment, you're figuring out what you're going to talk about as you're in a commercial break for the next five minutes. And it, it involves listening to a producer in a little earpiece. And it's chaos in the studio. Dale doesn't know what he's doing. He's, he's new to it. He's trying to diggers over here. He, his mind's going everywhere. And there are you. And every commercial break, you're having 17 conversations because you've got an unbelievable ability to do 17 things at once and then st- still somehow put your mind on the job when the red light goes on. That's been one of your secrets, I think. 
But as a host, I got, I'm like, what is he saying? What are we doing? What, what region? What games? What highlights? What's the comment? I don't know what we're doing. And commercial break after commercial break, like no one else in the set's paying attention but me. And then as we're counting down into the segment, out of the break, five, four, you would turn to me, what are we doing? What are we doing? What, what? And I would like have two seconds to tell you, but it never mattered. You always got through it quickly. But I'm being, I had a, like a fever of 102. I had no business being on the set. I should have been in, in, you know, getting a treatment in a clinic. But you try to soldier through and get, get on with the job. Finally, after about an hour of this kind of show, <laughs> we're in a commercial break. And the producer's trying to, I was laughing when Billy Graff was a producer of this show. He's still a great friend. He's still involved with, with your gala. We were laughing the other day. And, and finally, finally, I snapped. I was completely unprofessional. I lost my cool. And I turned to you in a commercial. And I said, MF, would you shut the F up? And then, and then you, so you looked at me like shocked because I, I, that was, I tried never to be that person. I tried to keep my cool, but you did make me do it, but I lost it. And I was a low point and that's on me. And you jump up, you grab the little lavalier microphone, which is on your tie. You take it <laughs> off. You got one foot off the set. You're out. You, you've tapped out. I've, I've, I've made, I've gotten Vitale off the air, which has been impossible to do for 30 years. But then you come to your senses. The guy's counting down three, two, you sit down, put the mic on. You shoot me a look. You give me like the Malocchio, it's called, right? Back in the neighborhood, but the evil. But then you go through it. Like not, nobody would know anything. You, you nail the segment. You're doing your usual thing. But every time that you're not talking and I'm not talking and Dale's going on or Digger's going on, you're looking at me. I go, oh, no, we're going to have to have a reckoning. We're going to have to have a come to Jesus about this next commercial break. And we did. And we sorted it out. And I love you for the fact that you don't have a glass jaw, man. I mean, you can. T- it's essential for people to really enjoy working with somebody. Yeah, yes, be sensitive, but, but, but be able to take a punch and come back. And by God, you, you know, we, we calm down and by the end of it, it's hugs and kisses. And yes, I, I love this guy. I, I got really mad at him once, but that was a, that was a wild situation. But you, you, you just kind of, you kept going like nothing had happened. Hey, let me just say this. I just celebrated my 50th anniversary. My wife has said a hell of a lot worse than what you said to me in one second. Are you kidding me? If I would have had, if I would have a guy that holds a grudge, I'd have been gone a long time ago. But the bottom line is, you know, you love people. I love you. I know you. You will. I mean, we got a great relationship. People uh, would be shocked. I mean, I really have such respect for you. As I was in that room, and when we went to bed that night, my wife said, "Man, you just feel like I could see Joyce sitting there with Chris all night talking." That's like I can talk all day to the guy. There's the guy that's a stories talking about every not just basketball, tennis, baseball, life. Talking to, and it's just fun. It's just lots of fun. You're a very inquisitive mind. We talked real estate. We talked investments. I, I miss you, man. I, I do miss work with you. I, I I did 15 years and I love college basketball and your infectious enthusiasm for it, your passion for it was a big reason why I got into it before I even got to ESPN or covered it. I really miss those days. And I look back with immense fondness. I've worked with you guys. Those, it, it was a, it was a blast. It was a, it was fun and in a different way than football is or tennis is. It was just, it was such a, so much about the personalities just being around you guys. Right now, Chris, I've been very blessed. Uh, the last five years, I've done the semifinal and championship games on ESPN International. That's all over the world, not here in the States, obviously, yep. but CBS has the, has the rights. They do a good job, Jim Nansen Company. But, you know, I've learned in life, you know, people say to me, don't you ever miss that you never, ever, well, like we're at a network that had the whole tournament. I don't miss any of that stuff. I, I To me, do I miss, you know, I'd love to have hair. I'd love to be a good-looking guy. I'd love to have that big body, sexy. People go wild for me, even though I think I'm a very sexy guy at 80. <laughs> anyway, the bottom line is you can't have everything you want. You can't have everything. So you take what you have, and you do the best of what you can. And I think all of us, all of us that have talked about over the years, guys like yourself, myself, like Tariqos, and we go on, the list is unbelievable. We've been able to do things we love. And to me, there's nothing greater. My father worked. He pressed coats in a factory, in a factory, seven in the morning. I'll never forget this. It inspired me. Seven in the morning to 4, 35 o'clock, press coats, white T-shirts, sweat like a pig. Brought me there at the end of my junior year, and that changed my life. My end of my junior year, he kept always, Richie, Richie, go to college. Richie, you don't want to do what I do. 
You got a brain, go to college. I don't go to college, nobody in film. I was going to buy a car, three year payments, go out and get a job like all my uncles and cousins did and family did. Bottom line is, I watched what he did. Then you come home. I learned more at my dinner table than any class I ever took. I learned about love. I learned about adversity. I learned about tough times. I watched my dad come home on Friday nights and put X number of dollars on a table for my mother. That was for food. X number of dollars for the insurance man. Come pick up this insurance. And then X number of dollars every Friday night. Every Friday night. I'm going to close with this, Chris. I'm going to get rolling. But every Friday night, we would take us out for dinner for pizza. So when I had my dream, I was chasing this crazy dream to be a college coach. And all of a sudden, Howard Garfinkel just got in a Hall of Fame as a contributor. Howard Garfinkel, I didn't really know at that time, came to hear me speak at a banquet closing up my high school, winning two state championships in a row. And he was there. And after the event, he said to me, are you going? Are you in a hurry? I said, no, we're going to go to a diner. It was a Candlewick diner in East Jordan, New Jersey. It's still there. It's a 24-hour diner. I used to go there all the time. They got a big kick. I was there a year ago with Lorraine, taking a little memory lane where I taught high school, where I, mean, where I coached high school, where I taught in elementary school, and then the diner. So every day I spent time at the diner. So anyway, we go to the diner, and Garth says to me, you belong in college. I said, well, that's nice of you to say, but I've got more rejections than the Dino Harvard gives out. I've written, I don't know how many. And I was realistic, Chris. I wasn't writing to Kentucky and Duke. I was writing to schools, uh, Columbia schools. I thought, can I be a graduate assistant? I'm 29 years old. I'd do anything, man. Two state championships in high school. I ran camps. I ran clinics. I started at 23 doing that because I just wanted a chance, an opportunity. I couldn't get one. So he said, I'm going to get you a college job. He said, I... I'm in talk, conversation every day with college coaches about players who come to my five-star camp. All that. You belong in college. Calls me back. I thought, it's just, I thought it was just another conversation. We stayed talking about, like you and I talked it's about two in the morning after the banquet. The diners all eating eggs and sausage, all the stuff you shouldn't do. <laughs> Violate, I don't do that now. But I'm sitting there. Lorraine was with me at the time. And uh, we leave. And I figure that's probably the last I'll hear him. All of a sudden, he calls me up about a week later. He's now look, it's up to you if you want to do it. So Rutgers University has a new head coach, Dick Lloyd. I talked to him about you. Sold you big time to him. However, he's already interviewed six guys. He's already been in six, and he's ready to make his decision. It's like on a Tuesday. I think Thursday, he said he's ready to make a decision. However, if you want to go down tomorrow and be interviewed, he said, based on my relationship with him, he'll interview you but the chances are slim. So I told him if he interviews you, he's going to hire you. So I said, well, I'll go there. With that. I got nothing to lose. The first interview I ever did in my life. So I go there, Chris, and I told this story at the Hall of Fame induction ceremony. Dick was there. Howard was there. And I told him, I said, I'm so honored they're here because Dick will get a kick out of this. He's interviewing me. And after about an hour and a half, two hours interviewing, he said, are you in a hurry? I said, uh, not really. He said, well, Come over and meet. I want to give me my wife and family. So now my head is racing. <laughs> Why would he want me to meet his wife and family unless he's interested in me, really interested? So I leave there after meeting his family, and I come home, and I give my wife a big high five. I said, I can't believe this. I said, I really think he liked me. However, I'm not going to get the job, but it was a great feeling sharing my insights and what I could do in recruiting, what state university, all this, and Five minutes later, after I did it, the phone rings. He says, I just want to make sure you got home or I, I gave you enough time. Obviously, you're home okay. I said, yeah, I am. I said, thank you so much for the interview. He said, well, Dick, Dick, Howard's right. I want to hire you right now. Chris, I burst in tears. I, 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 I said, are you serious? He said, well, I'll hire you right now. So I grabbed my wife and give her a high five. And I said, we are going to go celebrate we're going to go where my father and mother used to take me all the time. And I understand it still exists. New owners, obviously. Barcelona's Pizza Place. We'd go there, have pizza on Friday night as a family. It was a big thrill for them to take us out, my sister, brother, and I. So anyway, I go there with my wife. And as only a wife could do to ruin the party, ruin my feelings, she says to me, by the way, what are you getting paid? I said, well, I'm making right now 12000 a year with 
my master's, summer camp with my job teaching. I said, this got to be college, 25,000, I would imagine. I said, I don't even know. I never asked him. I never... So no iPhones. I run through payphone. And I call him up on a payphone. I said, Dick, Dick, it's not going to change my mind, whatever, but I'm just curious. What am I getting paid? So what are you making now? I said, I make about 12,000. He said, it's great. You're only going to take a cut for $1,000. So I come back to Lorraine. I said, patience, pride. Patience, I'm taking the job no matter what. And you know, Chris, when they gave me my first set of recruits, there were players like you, players like Steve Anderson's, Mike Tarico's. Who are we going to beat? Uh -oh. Who are we going to beat? Uh, I want to beat Kentucky. They thought I was crazy. I want to beat Kentucky. I want to beat. I want to beat uh, Carolinas and Dukes. They said, Dick, Dick, be real. I be real. I said, I understand this, and this is a message for anybody listening. If you think you're mediocre, you're going to be mediocre. If you think you're special, I said, why can't we as a state university, I can't convince two kids from Jersey, New York, or Philadelphia, two a year, that's eight players. I can't convince two a year to come to Rutgers to play at Madison Square Garden. You're crazy. So I'm going after the best player, I said, in the country. They said, you're nuts, man. Phil Sellers, Thomas Jefferson High School. Check the record books out. Check who holds the all-time records in scoring. Check who led them to the Final Four in 76. You had the shy, introverted Robert Montgomery Knight and the last undefeated team, Indiana. You had Michigan with Harvard and Green and Johnny Orr. You had UCLA. And then you had a school called Rutgers. And those kids were unreal. That opened doors for me to get the University of Detroit job. And again, I was told, can't, you can't get fans in here. Race riots a couple of years prior, nobody would come out. Nobody would go back to the urban, suburban area. I said, you're crazy. If you give people a product and you give them something to get excited about, and I plan on doing that, we're going to get people in. We sold out. We, we had 21 in a row. So again, can't never been part of my life. Biggest mistake I ever made career-wise, though, Chris, was I ran – to a situation where I didn't give it as thought as I should have. Jimmy V told me, you belong in college. He said, you're going to go from the University of Detroit, like I went from my owner to NC State, to a big-time college. Don't think about the NBA. Well, when they offered me the job, Mr. Davidson, you know, I was in awe. I mean, I'm teaching sixth grade in 1970, coaching high school. Seven years later, I mean, offered the job as the head coach of the Pistons. Six figures a year, new cars, uh, all kind of expense account, the whole bit. I mean, unbelievable. I couldn't believe it. So I took the job thinking that I could change things. Well, you know what? In the NBA right now, you can coach. And that was my downfall. The owner treated me like royalty. He was so good to me because he kept saying all the time, Dick, you want to get it done in a year or two. We know it's five years. You got to be patient. I said, I can't, I can't take this beat. I could coach a blue in the face. I can't beat Kareem in the Lakers. I can't beat Dr. J, Moses, and them the Sixers. I mean, it's not happening. And, and it just, and then what happened to me even made it tougher. Um, I'll never forget this. You get a great story out here. Bob was at my gala when you're Lanier, stayed at my house and all that. And we talked about memories. But we're playing the Lakers and we get ripped. Jabbar's having a field day inside. And Lanier taps me on the shoulder. He's sitting in his beautiful $1,000 at that time. That's expensive. $1,000 suit. He's got knee problems, knee surgery. Next to him in a beautiful suit is my power forward. Out for the year with a blood clot. John Shoemate from Notre Dame. So I got Shoemate and Lanier is next to me as assistant coaches. Lanier taps me on the shoulder. He says, Dick, Dick, I figured out our problem. Look at Japan. We have no inside game. I turned. I says, "No shit. No inside. <laughs> you're sitting here and shoot, and you're telling me we have no inside game. Give me a break." And that got me fired. And Lorraine kept telling me, "You can't keep telling the owner that you can't win in that." And finally, November 8, 1979, he pulls up to my house, limousine. Lorraine says, "I'm going around the block until the limousine leaves." Prepared, you're getting fired. This year, out of your mind, getting fired. We're at four and 
I think six at the time, something like that, four and eight, four and six. I said, no way, 12 games. We we broke records last year. Attendance was my first year there. No way. She says, you're getting fired. And Bill Davidson was as low-key a guy as you can ever be, brilliant man. Came in, he says, Dick, I hate to do this. I said, well, do what? So he made a coaching change. It's coaching change. I was so dumb father. I said, what does that mean? Well, means you're fired. <laughs> Bottom line is, but I don't want to lose you. I want to make you executive vice president, give me some title. And I'm not interested, Mr. Davidson. I'm going on my own. If I can't be doing what I want to do, I'm going to go on my own. And, you know, I cried. I'm a very emotional guy. I cried. Uh, I was a, my buddy labeled me in New Jersey, a boy, a ball, a dream. He used to always say to me, Richie, Stacy, Sirigano. said, Richie, you're a boy, a ball, and a dream. And I was. And it was taken from me. It was such a learning experience, Chris, because Lorraine said to me, you know, all those people you think of friends, they're associates. They're associates, not friends. They're on your hand. I'm calling people up I thought were friends, not getting returned phone calls. Couldn't get interest in this. Nobody would give me a right time of day. They, nobody cared anymore about, you know, you won state championships. You went to Rutgers into a school that never had a great player like that. Go out and recruit. Nobody talk, wanted to talk about Detroit. Only wanted to talk about, geez, you didn't get it done with the Pistons. You didn't get it done. Oh, really? I never gave myself enough time to get it done. But the bottom line is it turned out to be the best thing of my life because have I stayed in coaching, Chris? I had one thing in me that will never change, never change, that would have led me to my death early. I couldn't handle losing. Losing, even when I was in a, it took me to get over losing, even losing a game that people would say, well, you, you aren't favorites. I always believed when I went on the floor that night that I was going to have answers to win that game. And when that didn't happen, I, I I was miserable to be around. I don't think there'd be any 50th anniversary. I'll tell you that right now. I really don't believe that because I just couldn't handle losing. Well, you found your path in life, man. And 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 I, I've said this before, but but thank you for your passion, your inspiration, your generosity. Thank you for what you've done for me. Thank you for taking time here. You went into overtime, but I appreciate that. And and you delivered and and Bless you, Dick. I love you, and 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 thanks. And you just you just keep doing what you're doing for as long as you want to do it, because uh, a lot of people are inspired, not just me. That was so much fun for me. Dick was generous with his time. In fact, we went into overtime. I don't know if you caught it. At one point, he said, "Chris, I got to go, but I'll leave you with this." Then, about nine minutes later, he finally wrapped it up. It's beautiful. I am so grateful for the almost thirty-five year friendship with Dick and his wife, Lorraine. It's been really inspiring and fulfilling for me to be a small part of his team to raise money for pediatric cancer. If you're able to join his team, I'd urge you to go to dickvitale.com. That site has some inspiring content. It's sort of a hub for all of his fundraising efforts. There's also some very good sports content on there. So please help if you can, dickvitale.com. Hope you enjoyed the episode. As always, I'm very grateful for my co-executive producer, Jennifer Dempster, and the editing skills of Jason Weichelt that helps us out. If you can rate, review the podcast, and leave feedback on my Instagram at Chris Fowler. Talk to you soon.